May the Holy Spirit work powerfully in us, that we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Amen. How are you as a speaker when you get excited? You know, I've known some people who can, even when they get excited, have, they have this ability to slow down, right, and to, to sort of measure out their words, to, to really think about what they're saying, to stay judicious and rational, even, even in a, a heated moment. And for most people, it's difficult to do that. The heat of the moment, high emotions, you can lose a little bit of control over what we're saying. I think the prophet Amos sort of falls into that second category. Amos is this very spirited preacher. And you see that over and over in his uh, book, it really reads like a transcript of a sermon, more than like a, a long treatise, right? A thesis, some kind of essay. When you go and read the book of Amos, you hear him say over and over, hear this word, hear this word, things like that. The book of Amos is, is a book meant to be heard more than just read. And if you've never gone and read the book of Amos out loud, it's not terribly long. Maybe take a chunk of it and try and do that. You can hear how Amos is primarily not a writer, not, not an essayist. He's a preacher. He's a speaker. And when he gets going... Sometimes the thoughts sort of come out in this order that's not really logical, but it, it's thematic. It's not grammatically flowing, but it works. Let me show you where we see this in our text this morning. If you open up your bulletins, you look at that text from Amos chapter 5. We'll start there at verse 7. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. And then you jump on the next page to verse 10. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. As Amos is preaching here, he's preaching to Israel and to the wicked, rich Israelites who are oppressing their countrymen. Amos is preaching during a time when a wicked king ruled Israel. That king was Jeroboam II. And when I talk about Israel there, I mean the northern kingdom of Israel. This is uh, a couple hundred years, maybe after the Civil War, when Israel split north and south, you had Judah in the south, Israel in the north. Amos is preaching in the north to Israel, to Jeroboam II and his kingdom. In Jeroboam II's Israel, things looked great. They were prosperous. People had great wealth. The borders of Israel, of the northern kingdom, were the largest under Jeroboam II that they ever would be. Everything looked like it was going very well for the Israelites. But all that wealth and all of that power and all that success was built on wickedness. And Amos details throughout the rest of the text here what that wickedness looked like. The rich were oppressing the poor in the courts. They were denying them justice. These rich Israelites had turned the legal system into nothing more than a means for them to maintain their power over their fellow citizens. Now let me show you where that spirited uh, a detour of Amos comes out. We saw verse 7, we saw verse 10, but there's something that comes in the middle there. Verse 8. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. Here's Amos's spirited non sequitur. He's intending to talk about the rich people of Israel and their wickedness and the way that they abuse their power, right? And that's what he starts out doing in verse 7, and he picks it back up when he gets to verse 10. But right in the middle of that, he just bursts out with this description of God and God's power and who God is. 
again, doesn't flow grammatically here, right? And you see, even in our English translation, it's smoothed out a little bit, but you kind of read it and think, where is this bit coming from? Where is verse 8 and 9 coming from? The Hebrew, if you get into the Hebrew, it's even more clear that this is just disjointed by this passion, this emotion that Amos feels as he's talking. He's so stirred up as he talks about the wickedness and the, the abusive power of the Israelites, what it is that they're doing, that in the middle of that, he bursts out, you know what? If you think you're so powerful, if you think you're so impressive, if you think you're strong, let me tell you about somebody really impressive, really strong. Let me show you what God can do. Amos continues talking there about God, about God's power. He calls God the Lord God Almighty, our text says. A better translation for that title is actually the Lord God of Armies. The God who controls the heavenly armies of angels. The God who controls all nations of the earth. And can raise up armies against his own wayward people. In fact, you often see this title used for God in the Old Testament when he's reminding wayward Israel, wayward Judah, that he has that power. Verse 9, Amos says, With a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. The Lord God of armies is not deterred by, by human strength, by human power, by, by your cleverly engineering the results of the legal system, Israel. Consider your ways. Amos is saying to Jeroboam the second, to his nation, you seem to think that because you are prospering, that things are going well for you, that God doesn't care. Or at the very least, that your sins are not egregious enough for him to take notice. The Israelites need a rude awakening. They need to see what God can do. There's a young man in our gospel reading who needs to learn a similar lesson. Matthew is the one who notes for us that this is a young man. He's the only one who adds that detail. And the word that he uses there maybe implies that this is a man around my age. This young man needed to learn a related lesson. He needed to be shown not so much what it is that God can do, but this young man needed to be aware of what it is that he cannot do. This young man is rich, just like those Israelites against whom Amos is preaching, but that's really where the similarities end between this rich young man and those rich Israelites, because this young man is a faithful follower of the law of God. We have no reason, based on what we read here, based on Jesus' reaction to him, to assume that the young man was being dishonest, was misleading Jesus when he talked about keeping all of those commandments. Jesus would know. Jesus would know if the young man was lying to him, outwardly maintaining this facade. He doesn't call him out on it. Jesus is very measured, thoughtful with his response to this young man. He's not stirred up with passion like Amos, even though he is passionate, even though he loves this young man. But Jesus thinks through exactly what it is he's going to say to this young man. First, he gives him what we call the second table of the Ten Commandments. All those commandments that seem so outwardly keepable. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery, etc. The young man nods along with him. Yep, yep, all right, I've got that, I'm all good. Again, Jesus loves this young man, so he has to kill him. That's what the law of God does. It kills us. It strikes down the old sinful heart. Jesus preaches the law to the young man, and it doesn't inspire the young man to go and be better, to try harder for God. It kills him. That's what Jesus intended to do. As he preaches the law to this young man, his goal was not 
so that the young man would, in fact, go off and sell everything he had and then come and follow Jesus. His goal in preaching the law to the young man was to show him that he was powerless to earn his own salvation, that the question that he was asking set him out wrong from the get-go, right? What was the young man's question again? What must I do to inherit eternal life? You don't do anything to inherit. And inheritance comes because of your status as a child. So this young man walks away sad. He's sad because he's been made aware of the fact that he doesn't actually worship God. He worships his wealth. He thought he had been following God this whole time, but what does Jesus tell him? No, you haven't been. Follow me now. You get rid of this thing which you do worship. You have not been following me. It isn't following God to worship him because you think that it will bring you material blessings in this life. Maybe you will worship God and be materially blessed. Maybe you will worship God and suffer material hardship. Often we see both of those things happening in our lives, right? God isn't black and white like that in the way that we look at life and the way that we look at success in the world. And the young man isn't able to bring himself to worship a confusing God like that, a God who isn't like a vending machine. He just can't bring himself to do it. Jesus watches him walk away and he remarks to the disciples, it's impossible for a rich person to get into heaven. That's what Jesus says here. There are people who talk about what Jesus says here, this eye of the needle, and they talk about there being this, once upon a time, a, a narrow, low gate in Jerusalem which camels could only pass through if you took all of their baggage off, right? And then they had to go through on their knees. They had to be led through humbly. There's no archaeological, historical evidence. And I don't know if you've ever heard this explanation of Jesus' words here, but there's no evidence that this was, in fact, a thing that ever existed. Uh, this was invented, this myth was invented because what Jesus says here is offensive to human reason. Now, I found a travel blog online where someone talked about having been led through the eye of the needle gate on her visit to Jerusalem. She was hoodwinked. Again, there's no evidence that this is any such thing. Um, Jerusalem is kind of rife with these sorts of tourist traps, right? If you go to Jerusalem, you could have 10 different guides showing you 12 different locations for the upper room. But this is what this woman said about having been led through the needle gate in her experience, allegedly. People have issues with the Bible because of things like the eye of the needle verse, since it seems impossible to live up to these standards. Once this confusing passage is explained, it makes more sense. This passage is supposed to cause issues for people. It is an impossible standard, not a standard that you can meet with some difficulty, not a standard that you can meet by, by divesting yourself of something and trying really hard and squeezing yourself through. It's impossible. The disciples understand that. That's what their reaction says. Jesus is saying that it is impossible, that this good, sincere, eager, rich man will not enter heaven. That shocks the disciples. This is no Gentile. This is a good Jew, a good follower of the law of God. Hasn't God even blessed this man, it would seem? Here's the disciples' thought process. If not even a good, faithful follower of God's law, whom God has blessed in this life, is allowed to get into heaven, what does that say about us? If Evil, 
people, like Jeroboam II, like his Israelites, go to hell. And good, faithful law followers, like this rich young man, go to hell. What's going to happen to us, they ask. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. See what God can do, Jesus says to his disciples. This is moving a little bit away from being a, a sermon on Amos to a sermon on Mark, isn't it? Let's get back to Amos. What is it that Amos is saying to his hearers and to us? Place your confidence, he says, in whatever you want to in this world. In money, in the power that money can buy, in social status afforded by your money and your power, whatever you want it to be. God can take it all away. If you think you are strong, if you think you are powerful, if you think you are able to create for yourself security and independence and salvation, see what God can do. I haven't yet talked about the reading from Hebrews yet. And I know I was just saying we should get back to Amos, but let's tie that one in and see how it connects to this whole theme. The Hebrews reading tells us to live out the love that God has for us in our lives toward others. But when we're honest with ourselves, each and every way that the writer to the Hebrews tells us to do that this morning shows us our powerlessness. Love strangers. We don't do that. We call names at cars as they drive away from us when they've offended us. Avoid sexual immorality. Jesus tells us that even lustful looks break this command. Be content always, all the time. Never even a deep, if only, kind of sigh. See how powerless we are. These are the commands that God sets forth for us. These are the standards to which we are called to live up. See what we cannot do. Save ourselves. Fulfill the law. We cannot enter heaven. So the writer to the Hebrews follows up these commands with a promise. God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Amos ends with a promise. Even to those wayward Israelites, he says, see your sin. Hear this message of judgment. Here's the promise from the God to whom you will turn. The Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as he says, just as you say he is. Jesus, Jesus ends with a promise. All things, even the salvation of this rich young man who walked away sad, all things are possible with God. You know what? There's no reason to assume, to have to assume, that at the end of this, his life, this rich young man who went away sad that day necessarily had to go to hell. In fact, early church tradition posits that the rich young man was actually John Mark, the one who wrote this gospel. Now let me tell you, I don't buy that. Uh, there's this tendency when you read the writers of the early church where they want to identify every single unnamed biblical person with a named biblical person, right? Trying to map everyone onto one another. I don't buy it. Whether this man was John Mark or not, though, he could have been saved. Jesus went and died for him. Jesus went and died for you. If the message of the law this morning in these texts, in my words, has had its effect on you, has shown you your natural powerlessness against sin, has shown you your need for a powerful Savior, has made you hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
Look at this altar. Here you will see, receive body and blood of Jesus Christ given on his cross for the forgiveness of all of your sins. See what God can do. See his power through bread and wine he's going to give you this morning. Forgiveness, life, salvation. See what God can do. Join your brothers and sisters at this altar this morning. And rejoice that your powerful God has stepped in where you were powerless to save yourself. And you know what? One day on the other side of eternity, you may just find that the rich young man stood in front of an altar also, holding out his hand to receive bread from a preacher, taking the cup to drink the blood of Jesus given for him. Friends, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled. Amen. Please stand.